Welcome to Emerge Everywhere. I'm Jennifer Tesher, journalist turned financial health champion. As founder and CEO of the Financial Health Network, I've spent my career breaking down silos by engaging with innovators across industries. And now I'm sharing those conversations with you. Meet the forward-thinking leaders challenging the status quo and unleashing creative new ways of improving financial health by seeing their customers, employees, and communities in 3D. The tragic murder of George Floyd, a 46-year-old Black man by a white Minneapolis police officer, captured in 8 minutes and 46 seconds of heart-wrenching video, became a new symbol of racial inequity in America. And this was on top of the health and financial challenges faced by minority communities already disproportionately impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic. In the wake of that pain-filled summer of 2020, J.P. Morgan Chase, the largest bank in the U.S., announced a significant response, a new $30 billion commitment to provide economic opportunity to the underserved, especially Black and Latinx communities. My guest today, after a remarkable 30-plus year career at the bank, was called upon to lead this massive effort. Alice Rodriguez is Chase's new head of community practices, engagement, and inclusion. She's also the new chairwoman of the U.S. Hispanic Chamber of Commerce. We'll talk with her about the bank's renewed commitment to mitigate economic inequalities in society, the most valuable lessons she learned from her immigrant mother, and how she hopes to lift up Black and Latinx communities across the country. Alice, welcome to Emerge Everywhere. Thank you, Jennifer. Happy to be here. So we'll talk a little bit more about your personal journey Uh, your background, sort of how you got to here in a little bit. But first, I want to start with this new role you've taken on. Um, As I mentioned at the top, uh, in October of 2020, JPMC launched a new $30 billion commitment to provide economic opportunity to underserved communities, really as a response to uh, the racial awakening uh, of last year. But I know that after your 30 years at JPMC, that you were actually preparing to retire. In fact, I think this may have been the fourth time you were preparing to retire. And then JPMC CEO Jamie Dimon asked you to come back and lead this effort. So why did you say yes? Well, Jennifer, uh, you're absolutely spot on. Uh, it's not that I don't like J.P. Morgan Chase, but you know, like many people, I've just been at a, a pivotal place just trying to understand how I can uh, drive my purpose. Uh, more broadly. But I did get the phone call uh, from my boss, Tasonda Duckett, as well as Gordon Smith, and uh, my conversation with Jamie. And, you know, the reason I decided to delay my retirement once more was as I saw the things that were happening from a COVID perspective to the Latinx community, to the Black community in particular, as you already said, even prior to the civil unrest, you know, the the disease was really having a disproportionate impact on communities. And I saw that firsthand. And I just thought that if there was an organization that could truly, truly think about the racial wealth divide in this country and make changes structurally within itself, to make a difference, you know, J.P. Morgan Chase was the one that could do it, and I wanted to be a part of that. So tell us a little bit more about your work 
at Chase over these 30 years, I know you held numerous roles, um, to help give us a sense of uh, why you felt that uh, a bank could play such an important role in this uh, systemic and societal issue. Yeah, so um, in my tenure here at the bank, I've had the real privilege of uh, leading teams on the ground, you know, client-facing on the consumer side, on the business banking side. And as I think about those conversations that I would have with those clients coming in, you know, wanting to obviously do all the things we all dream about, right? Sending your kids to college, being able to own a home, being able to you know, um, save for your retirement, like all of those goals, like it doesn't matter what social economic background you come from, everybody has the same dreams. And so I think that as um, I thought about those conversations that I had with, you know, I don't know, Jennifer, if I had to guess, you know, thousands and thousands of customers over those years, you know, this got me to thinking about, okay, when you think about the key drivers of wealth, and what you need to do, you know, home ownership comes to the top. So does everyone have accessibility, right, to understanding how they get there? You know, when you think about, you know, what the role that savings plays, the role that, you know, uh, intergenerational re- uh, wealth transfer plays, all of those key drivers, obviously, a financial institution has a big role. You know, think about the capital that one needs to start their own business, and, you know, I'm sure that many people out there have seen a lot of the statistics in terms of some of the real opportunities out there. So, for instance, you know, Latinx and Black entrepreneurs start their businesses with 50% less capital than white entrepreneurs. So, as a banker, you pause and you say, well, why is that? Like, truly, why is that? So, you know, your question was, you know, why JP Morgan? Why this financial institution? Well, Because when you think about what we do every day to help our clients, we could have a real impact on understanding those root causes. And then more importantly, think about the solutions at a very local level that can have impact. Got it. So your CEO, Jamie Dimon, appears to have really increased his focus on the economic inequalities in society uh, and what can be done to mitigate them even before um, the events of last summer. For instance, um, in his letter to shareholders last May, in May of 2020, which w- which was really the early stages of the pandemic, and it was just prior to George Floyd's murder, he recognized how the virus was exacerbating the health and economic inequities that already existed for people of color. And then he wrote this, and I quote, This crisis must serve as a wake-up call and a call to action for business and government to think, act, and invest for the common good and confront the structural obstacles that have inhibited inclusive economic growth for years. Now, the company has long invested in and provided philanthropic support to disadvantaged communities. But this new commitment, this $30 billion commitment that you're now stewarding, really seems to raise the bar. So how have the events of 2020 been a catalyst towards shaping the culture of the bank towards and around this mission? And are there any other key drivers besides last year's events? For instance, I think about the fact that you often see reports in the press that maybe at some point in the not-too-distant future, uh, Jamie Dimon will be preparing to retire. 
Um, you know, does that have any impact? Talk to us about how Chase arrived at this moment. You know, I think that Jamie has long had a history of, you know, staying very focused with what the pain points are across the entire, like, landscape, you know, in addition to, obviously, the institution that he runs. And I think that, you know, he wants to bring solutions to the challenges. And he's always had that mindset. And I think that with the events of 2020, you know, we heard over and over, unprecedented, right? This has never happened. Obviously, last pandemic 100 years ago, people in a lot of pain, both from an economic perspective and a health perspective. And it brings a whole new level of uh, anxiety, right, to everyone. And we, we saw that, you know, within our own organization, with our own employees worried about their own health, as well as with the communities that we serve. So I think that it was sort of that perfect storm that said, okay, we've always um, had a very strong focus philanthropically in the cities that we serve. How do we take that lens and pair it with how the business thinks about solutions that they provide clients, about how we think about the markets, about how we think about uh, just innovation, et cetera, and put those things together so that we could figure out within not just our own uh, organization, but more broadly, like with the partners that we have, so that we make more progress and that we amplify, right, those solutions. And so I think that's what's really different, Jennifer. Like if, if I was to think about my 34 years at the bank and everything we've ever done to serve our communities, we've never really, like, like integrated those two uh, parallel paths and then established real strong accountability around, okay, we've got to figure out now how we do that. So that when you make a bold commitment like we have, right, which is very focused on lending, lending on the affordable housing side, as well as on the small business side, as well as, you know, uh, some of the investments we're making from a financial health perspective. When you make a bold statement like that, it forces you, right, to really uh, lean in and decide what you have to amend or start over with or change within your infrastructure to make that happen. Well, and you have direct experience with that, maybe on a smaller scale, because when we first met Alice, it was because of a new role that you had assumed around, if I have it correct, managing your um, mass market customer segment for the consumer bank and uh, really being asked to think differently about both the potential of those customers and the way to engage them. Um, that was both good for the business and good for them. Talk a little bit about that experience and how um, it may have, in, in a funny way, prepared you even more for this moment. Yeah. So, you know, I had always been in positions where, you know, I inherited a portfolio of clients, right? Whether it was on the business banking side or the consumer side. And so it's already an existing business and it's got a strategy uh, on those customers, and you're not having to um, start de novo as much, right? Or just start with a white sheet of paper and figure it out, how, like how you meet these needs. And so, when I was asked to look at our mass market segment 
and determine whether or not we were meeting all the needs of those customers, it really required a clear understanding of what is it that what, as you recall, Jennifer, uh, we coined as everyday people. You know, what are the pain points that everyday people um, have? And you know, having uh, grown up in in very like uh, humble uh, type of environment, um, I knew what that meant. You know, I, I I knew what it meant to worry about you know, how you put food on the table. Not that I had to worry about that. Obviously it was my parents who had to worry about that. But if I think back on the conversations that we had at the dinner table, it wasn't about, you know, how do we, how do we save more? How do we make more with our money? What's happening in the capital markets? You know, (laughs) sometimes I would joke with T, uh, Tassana Duckett that, you know, the conversation we had about the market was, hey, there's a sale going on at the grocery store and might, you know, they call that the market, right? Right. Uh, so I guess my point being that for me, that assignment to think about everyday people and to think about how we could do a better job of providing the right tools, the right marketing, the right um, training for our bankers uh, was very exciting to me because, I loved, loved, loved being in front of customers and understanding how we can help. But this was a whole different way to think about how to help millions of customers across the board based on, you know, some of the uh, things we had in our roadmap. Yeah. You know, uh, a big theme of this show is really taking off our blinders and seeing people in 3D in all of their complexity and humanity uh, and, what you just said sort of reminds me of that idea that I think that the people who often are most drawn to this work and are most successful at it are those that either through their own lived experience or just their empathy um, are really able to see people and relish the opportunity to understand people fully. uh, Because at the end of the day, that's who we're working on behalf of. Uh, and so I really, um, I really appreciate hearing your, your story. So let's get back now to this, uh, the $30 billion commitment and your job today. It's a big job. Um, I think that the commitment is organized around four key pillars. Talk to us a little bit about what those pillars are, how the bank came up with this plan, and what's the process for executing on it? Yeah, so um, as you said, there's four pillars, and everything that um, that we that got solidified as our plan was all grounded, obviously, in research and partnering with you know the different organizations and nonprofits that focus on racial uh, equity, you know everything that drives wealth creation. And so I'm really proud that we were thoughtful around how we did this. And a lot of it stemmed from some of the work that Jamie did with the business roundtable. But there are four, what I'd say, four pillars. And the first is affordable housing. So the supply side of things. So we recognize that across America, there are some real challenges for consumers where they're very cost burdened. They live in a very cost burdened city. And the the affordability just isn't there from a housing perspective. And so to really focus on the supply side, because it's very hard for for people to make progress, right, in their financial lives, 
if they can't even afford to pay the rent that they're having to pay. The second pillar is on the other side of the coin, which is affordable lending. So again, when we think about one of the key drivers of wealth creation for people, it is home ownership. So ensuring that you know we had the right products in place, the right approaches, so that um, we did a better job from an affordable lending perspective. The next pillar was around uh, minority small businesses. So again, specifically thinking about uh, Business, small businesses being, again, one of the wealth uh, creators for people, uh, and, and especially true, by the way, in uh, minority communities. And the fourth was around, you know, financial health, because as we saw, well, what is needed for people to be prepared for that homeownership? Well, they have to have a good FICO score. They have to have savings to put down in order to buy that home. Uh, they have to have the right, you know, tools. And we really had a very specific lens around the number of unbanked and underbanked people that there are in America. And I know that shock when you give them the statistic, the FDIC statistic around, you know, 10 million households being unbanked, but it's true. And uh, no one knows that better than you, Jennifer. And so uh, being able to uh, be very specific about these four key areas and more importantly, you know, holding the lines of business accountable to the incremental lending that we were wanting to do around um, affordable housing, around affordable lending, around uh, small business, and then the investment we wanted to make uh, as it related to financial health. So particularly with the lending initiatives, how is this different than what the bank already does as it relates to its CRA, its Community Reinvestment Act responsibilities and commitment? Yes, yeah, so, so this is, so we have that commitment and obviously we're always very focused on our CRA commitments, but this is like going above and beyond that and really challenging ourselves uh, and thinking about things from an incremental perspective and challenging ourselves from the standpoint of everything from marketing. When we think about our marketing plans, are we doing um, a good job of marketing. And again, as you know, the commitment, and you said this at the first part of your um, of the podcast, is very focused on Black and Latinx because that's where we see the biggest gaps. Uh, so when we think about it from a marketing perspective, culturally, are we culturally relevant? Are we you know, marketing ourselves in the right uh, venues? Are we using the right mechanisms? Uh, it's really challenging ourselves around our product. You know, is our product competitive? You know, does it make sense? Uh, should we think about um, some additional enhancements? So, as an example, if you're thinking about a first-time home buyer, should we think about a larger grant to help them with the down payment assistance? So, it, it was just like really challenging ourselves around, like, how do you get more people in the funnel? And ensure that um, you are in the right places and that you're able to capture the audience in a way that is different than you have done in the past. Now, am I wrong, or is there also um, an element to this plan that's around uh, building a more diverse and inclusive workforce of your own? 
No, that's part of the path forward as well. And uh, my colleague, Brian Lamb, uh, is our new head of diversity and inclusion. And he owns that stripe. And I say, thank goodness that I have a wonderful partner. You know, he's focused on, you know, many things, but, you know, his a very large part of his remit, obviously, is internally. You know, how do we sure we have the right pipelines, the right representation at all levels, again, with a very strong lens around Black and Latinx. Okay, that's helpful. Uh, now, let's talk a little bit more about your role specifically. Is it herder of cats? Um, is it project manager extraordinaire? Um, uh, is it uh, uh, bully pulpit? Um, or is it all of those things? It, 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 because what you said earlier about really pulling this through the business in a way that maybe you hadn't to this extent before would suggest to me that it's about embedding it in everything. And I can only imagine what's required to get everyone on board and sort of pulling in the same direction. Yeah. So um, it's a little bit of all of the above, as you mentioned, but I would, I see myself as like the chief collaborator and uh, counselor in this whole thing. So like, from, from my perspective, like the number one thing I have to stay grounded in is helping the CEOs to be re- to get relevant to what the issues are at a local level. So we're a very large national bank. And obviously, you know, our, our CEOs and our leaders have a lot to think about. So they might not understand all of the nuances as it relates to, you know, uh, advancing racial equity in particular geographies that we do business in. So a big part of my job is to help understand, okay, we've got this $30 billion commitment and we all know what we're trying to accomplish across all four four pillars, but let me help you like prioritize what are some of the uh, local communities that we're in that might require some reinforcements and more importantly, a localized plan for that city to make the kind of progress that we want to. And in order to do that, I need to provide them with at least some analysis on what's going on in that city. So an example of that would be, um, I'll just use Houston, Texas as an example. A third of their population is unbanked and underbanked. 53% of their adults are black or Latinx. And if you pull children in, that is a city that, you know, 75% of their residents are black and brown. Um, And Alice, are you in Houston or Dallas? I forget. I live in Dallas. I live in Dallas. Um, When you look at the housing supply there, 25% of their affordable housing uh, supply was pretty much decimated as a result of Hurricane Harvey a few years ago. So these are all like facts, right? Uh, not to mention that when you when you look at just all of the you know the challenges they've had with COVID, given that it's a you know a very strong Latinx community, Black community, as I already mentioned, th- these are probably things that the business is not as aware of, right? They're looking at very macro uh, items, and so the point that um, that I'm trying to bring up here is that. In order for us to out whether or not their line of business strategies really hit the pain points of the city, I have to provide them first with the analysis. I have to provide them a view of what do our community leaders say in Houston? 
Well, this requires doing roundtables with community leaders. Let's make sure that we're hitting on the things that are important to them. You know, working with my corporate responsibility colleagues who are on the ground, you know, trying to address some of these pain points. Um, and once we do all that and we develop this plan, holding them accountable. So again, the whole point here is that we're going to get incremental growth over the five years. Um, and the way I think about my role is not just like pointing out the facts to them, but being a collaborator around the solutions they put in place and then just challenging, you know, some of the strategies that they have. So if, if they're not, as an example, uh, doing as much local marketing in one community over the other, why not? And how could we change that? And so it's a very strong influencing role. And the way that I plan to influence is with facts. And, and more importantly, um, hopefully helping people to, you know, what I call like digest the problem that the community is facing and then figuring out like, how do you have a win-win? How do you maintain, right, profitability and all of those things that are important to the line of business, which they have to, right? That's, th that's their job. But how can they do that while they're also doing good in the community and not having to give up as much? So, you know, one would think that uh, with a CEO who's as vocal on this um, as Jamie is, uh, that you wouldn't have to do a lot of influencing, shall we say. But I'm guessing that that's, you know, it's a big company and that some of this is actually about challenging longstanding beliefs that may come from a lack of data or information? Yeah, I think it's kind of the, the way I would describe it is that it is an organization like many large organizations that is aligned around lines of business. And as a result, right, you, have, you don't necessarily always have the right pipes to think about problems at a super local level. And so how do I help them connect those pipes a little bit better so that they're able to do that. That's number one. And then I think, you know, secondly, it, when, when they've had success doing something a certain way, like in many instances in life, it's like, well, why change it? Like, why, why do I need to do things a little bit different? Because this has worked for a long time. But when my experience has been like, once I'm able to help them see the problem at a different angle there they start and write the need then to to start being more innovative about you know solutions and again like how can you do it in a way where i you know obviously i want them to be successful in everything that they're doing and i acknowledge that they've had success doing things the way they've been doing them but what how much more could you do if you were just to like tweak some things um, in a different way that would allow us again to amplify. So you're really like the Warby Parker. Uh, you're handing out different lenses, different glasses <laughs> to enable people to see just a little bit differently. That's yes. interesting. Yeah. So you've talked a lot about accountability, which is great. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you'll know if you're successful how the company will know it's successful. Like what kinds of goals have you set aside from a giant dollar amount? Um, and talk a little bit about how that accountability is being driven through uh, internal processes, whether that's performance plans, compensation, et cetera, to the degree that you're able to share. 
Yeah, we have a lot of governance around, you know, how we're managing path forward commitments and, you know, every line of business is handling, you know, how they want to um, internally, whether that's through scorecards, et cetera. And for the most part, they all have some uh, element of the path forward uh, in those uh, in those scorecards. Um, but I would say, you know, in, in my mind, you know, success looks like um, we're not having to, like we have built the right processes in place. So it's not as challenging to get things. We're acting very nimbly in the organization that we can start to see in these communities that we're trying to make impact that our rates are changing because I couldn't agree with you more, Jennifer. It's not about like checking the box and counting the widgets. I mean, we're going to do that, but if we don't uh, like really create a process where there's sustainability here and that over time, right, you actually see that wealth gap narrowing, then I would say that we didn't do our jobs right, that something was amiss around there. And that's why I feel very passionate around, you know, we have to really change the DNA of the place a little bit in order to get to where we're wanting to get around that narrowing of the wealth gap, because that's the true test, right? Is that over time that we can, we can definitely see that in these communities that we're focused on. And do you, do you, how will you measure that essentially? You'll, you'll measure it local community by local community? Yeah, so we have prioritized, you know, uh, communities across the country. I mean, all of the places we do business in are important, of course. But there are 15 markets across the country that represent just about half of the Black and Latinx uh, underserved. And so in my mind, you know, for us to make progress in those markets is extremely critical. That's, I mean, that's where you'll know that, yes, the solutions that we put in place. So in, in my mind, again, you're really looking for, you know, whether you're measuring um, uh, customer satisfaction, but specifically trust in these communities that you start to see that indicator going up, right? That you start to see a um, improvement and the number of people that you're bringing into the banking system. So again, looking at the unbanked and underbanked numbers for these communities and recognizing whether or not you're improving your penetration there. So we have a, a set of you know metrics aside from the $30 billion widget numbers that will help us understand whether or not we really have the community engagement that we're looking for. Uh, and to me, a lot of that is measured by the trust and it's measured by the number of people that we're able to bring into our uh, banking system. Yeah, that's great. You know, five years is a relatively short period of time to be moving the needle significantly as it relates to the wealth gap numbers. You know, and one thing uh, that I think about is whether measuring financial health uh, is a nice intermediate measure that suggests we're directionally correct uh, because we can see changes in people's financial health on a year-to-year basis. Uh, and uh, it, that, that may be helpful given that the duration of this initiative is, is five years. 
I think that's uh, well said, Jennifer, and 100%, by the way, because financial health is one of our pillars and all of those things that we look at, like, you know, savings uh, rates, like credit scores, and, uh, you know, improving, uh, et cetera, are absolutely critical. And I agree with you. You know, if you look at that median net worth for a white household, it's 188000 mm. Okay. For a uh, Latino household, it's thirty-six thousand, and for a Black household, it's twenty-one thousand. So, there, to your point, those are serious gaps, and it was, you know, let's be honest here, like you know, like hundreds of years of different reasons why that is the case. So, we don't want to be naive into thinking that in five years, right, we've like completely come to parity. Uh, but I do agree with you that it is the financial health measures. It's the stuff that I've spoken about already. And you just want to, in my opinion, make like some meaningful difference in that, in those financial health uh, measures to help you have that confidence, as you mentioned, uh, for the future years. So if this weren't enough to focus on, um, I understand that you were recently named the chair of the board for the United States Hispanic Chamber of Commerce. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, and for those who aren't familiar, the Hispanic Chamber represents more than 4.7 million businesses nationwide, and its members contribute $700 billion to the economy each year. Now, I know that serving Latinx communities is important to you, both personally and professional. professionally. You're the daughter of immigrants, and you talked a little bit earlier about your growing up life. How did that shape your worldview in terms of money and work? And what are lessons that you've learned from your upbringing that you carry with you today? Yeah, so... Um... My mother was the immigrant, just to be uh, factually correct. My dad was actually uh, born in the in the U.S., was from the U.S., uh, but my mother came from a family of 12, and uh, my grandfather died when, uh, when she was about 13 years old. Uh, my grandmother did not read or write, and so it was very challenging you know, for my grandmother to raise uh, all of her children by herself, and so she ended up, you know, sending some of her children to live with other you know, relatives. Uh, and that's how my mother ended up immigrating into the U.S., uh, living with, you know, family that were already here. So I would say that, you know, the thing that I really valued the most about both of my parents is, you know, neither one of them um, had more than a middle school education. And uh, what, what, particularly my mother, because my mother is the one who uh, really uh, raised us, uh, she what what she lacked in you know education she made up for in very strong work ethic and very strong you know family values. Uh, she's a very strong faith based person. So we were raised to you know uh, be very fearful of doing the wrong thing. <laughs> uh, but I, I just uh, those are the things that really you know drove me. And you know I I remember uh, Jennifer my mom. Um, had lots of nieces and nephews. Uh, I have 50 first cousins just because my of the, my family. And I had, you know, several of my uncles and my cousins that used to do migrant work. And so, you know, there was a few summers where we spent in Chicago 
because my mother was going to go do migrant work with, you know, some of her nephews in, in Indiana. And so we would drive up there, you know, my mother with four children, you know, keep in mind, you know, she doesn't really speak English, you know, she doesn't really understand the lay of the U.S. very much, but she just had so much perseverance, you know, to, to succeed. And so she would drop me off with uh, an aunt my sister with another aunt, so she's not burdening too many people with taking care of her children while she went to work. And my point of the story is, I'll, I'll never forget, like, going to this, at that time, it was the Sears Tower. Uh, and I'm about eight years old, and I grew up in Brownsville, Texas, where the tallest building was three stories. And, you know, going to see the Sears Tower was, like, overwhelming. But what struck me in going to see the Sears Tower is that, you know, people were, you know, walking into that building, you know, and nice suits and they had briefcases. And, you know, as a kid, it just like, well, how come nobody in our family works here? Like everybody works in meat markets or they're working, they're doing migrant work or they're doing, you know, jobs that are uh, more manual in, in nature. And I remember asking my aunt, you know, when we got home, like, why didn't anybody in our family work at the Sears Tower? And she just like, it was one of those things where children were, you know, what's that saying? They're to be seen, not heard. Uh, and <laughs> so it's pretty much, she just like, you go outside and play and kind of mind your own business kind of thing. Right. So, but I, I, I share that because I really believe that that inspiration was all about like, okay, I don't know what I'm going to do when I grow up, but I'm not, I want to work at the Sears tower. I don't want to work, you know, doing those other jobs and I'm not at all, you know, disparaging the things that my family did, you know, to put food on the table. But I also just felt like it was that little thing nagging, like, why, why, why? So I share all that because I think that as I reflect back on the skills that I bring, you know, to the table, uh, I feel like I learned a lot of leadership from my mother. I feel like I'm scrappy. So when people tell me, like, how have you managed to be at, you know, J.B. Morgan Chase and its predecessors for 34 years, I think it's because I'm scrappy and I figure out how to get things done. And I, and, I, and I often think about, like, what I do every day, you know, like, I get to help people and I work in air condition and I think about, like, what my family did. My dad was a shrimper. He was gone for months at a time. I mean, that's hard work. And so I think that um, those, like, life skills – is, is what has helped me uh, think about not just the things I'm doing at the U.S. Hispanic Chamber of Commerce, but in my job at, you know, J.P. Morgan. And it's helpful. That's an incredible story. I really appreciate you sharing that. You know, the past year has brought a lot of attention to the impact of systemic racism on Black communities. Um, but at the same time, the pandemic has also had a tremendous and tragic impact on the, the Latinx community. Um, and you've said before that uh, that community is among the most hard hit demographically. Do you worry at all that the Latinx community has been underestimated or overlooked as we work to address societal inequalities? I, I, I know that uh, the J.P. Morgan Chase commitment is inclusive of both the Latinx and Black communities, um, but maybe with your hat on from the U.S. Hispanic Chamber, uh, I'd love to hear your reflection on that. And as the nation reckons with the legacy of slavery and the historical impact on Black communities, 
What else do we need to do as a nation to ensure that we're also focusing on uh, the systemic inequities faced uh, by the Latinx community? I have been quite candidly disappointed that uh, there hasn't been enough in the news media about the impact. In fairness, you've, you know, I've seen more uh, probably in the last like three months or so that highlights some of the challenges. But it, it, to be candid, it just doesn't make sense. You know, uh, Latinos are, you know, 18 and a half percent of the of the whole uh uh, population here in the U.S. and it's a very young group. I mean, the average age is 30. The most common age in a household is 11. And so, when you think about you know consumer spending being 70% of GDP, like for the next three decades, right? Th- this is your base that is going to drive the economy. And mm-hmm. so, being focused on the fact that you know Latinos have been hospitalized like three times more than any other group that one in six are essential workers. So think about that, right? It's like, they, or rather they, they one in six, um, you know, don't have jobs that they can do from home, right? They have to be on the front lines and we over-index in uh, industries that are essential workers. Um, you know, 72% of them right now uh, surveyed say they've got financial problems right now because they've taken more pay cuts, they've been, you know, laid off. So I can go on and on. Uh, but I do think that, um, and I believe this as chairwoman of the U.S. Bank Chamber of Commerce, that you cannot get to the economic progress that we need to make as a country and get out of this recession without going to the Latino community. You, you know, you have to be able to address the pain points there. And so I know at the chamber, you know, we're doing everything we need to do from an advocacy perspective to ensure, particularly right now, that the new administration is aware of, you know, the efforts that we think need to be focused on to propel the Hispanic-owned businesses in the country, but also, you know, just from a consumer uh, standpoint that we're focused uh, there as well. So $30 billion dollars. It's a really significant commitment, but you and I both know that it's really a drop in the bucket relative to the need. Um, And in some cases, the change that we need or uh, the need in the community isn't money. It's a change in mindset or in habits or in practices, policies. I know that you're still very early in carrying out this commitment and are learning, I'm sure, every day. But you sit in a unique place um, in leading that charge. And I wonder if you have a call uh, to action to other companies, other organizations, people who are listening uh, in terms of what they can do uh, to help be part of the solution. Yeah, I, I think the call to action is like really partnering with one another. I mean, I think that uh, part of what we're trying to do is say that we can't solve it by ourselves, Jennifer, that yes, you know, we're, we're proud that we've committed the $30 billion, but if you want real change, if you really want to amplify, it is taking all of those pain points in that community and bringing in all of the relevant partners that can focus in on the education challenges that we have around these two segments we've been talking about around just, you know, the bandwidth that's available 
in you know rural areas in urban areas or the lack thereof right and how do we come together to to solve that so it's taking like all of those root causes and together coming uh coming together as a business community to solve them and so the call to action is is really to um, identify the partners that you think you need to be aligned with and then coming up with a plan uh, to work through those solutions together. Excellent. Well, Alice, wise words. Uh, thank you so much for joining us on Emerge Everywhere. Thank you for having me. This has been Emerge Everywhere, a Financial Health Network production. I'm Jennifer Tesher, and I'd love to hear your ideas for future guests and your reactions to the show. You can connect with me on Twitter at Jen Tesher. If you liked this episode, please review the show and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about the work and research we do, please visit emerge.finhealthnetwork.org. See you next time.